Hello and welcome back to the Boss Podcast. I am Kirk Bailey and I have returned to your smart speaker or headphones after a short break with more great talks from the Business of Software conferences. To help us get us back into the swing of things, we have a brand new talk from Simon Wardley looking at mapping the future of your business. Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. In this talk from our online spring conference in 2021, Simon Wardley walks us through how Wardley mapping helps you to understand where your business is, identify opportunities and threats to its existence, make plans for the future, and gameplay the routes to get into where you want to be. It is a powerful tool to inform your strategy and monitor your progress. Check out the full video of the session where he shows you all the slides to help visualize the concept at businessofsoftware.org talks. Happy listening. So what am I gonna go through? I'm gonna go through, um, first of all, the origin uh, of the work that I did around mapping started 16 years ago, uh, quite some time ago. Uh, and then I'm going to go through what is a map. Um, then I'm going to talk about patterns. And then I've got a bit of a magical mystery tour at the end where we can get into things like meaning or organization or, or culture or things like digital sovereignty. But uh, um, or, or you just might have questions. Of course, we've got a session afterwards, uh, which is all questions and answers. And I'm sure we'll use mirror boards and have lots of fun then. So let's start with the origin. Um, maps. Where did it begin? Uh, so 16 years ago, I was working for this company. Uh, it was called Fatango, uh, online photo service. Had about 16 different lines of business. Um, one of them was being a photo service. Um, in total, across all the businesses, uh, I must have, must have been uh, close to 10 million users. Um, and it was doing very well. Yeah, profit, profitable. Revenue was rapidly growing. Uh, it was great. Uh, except I had a big problem. And the big problem uh, was the CEO. Uh, the CEO was completely clueless. Uh, didn't, didn't have an idea what they were doing. Uh, they were making it up as they went along. And I know this because I was the CEO. Um, I mean, I used to come up with these wonderful statements of, you know, strategy and things like this. I mean, um, this is Fatango in 2003. Uh, our strategy is customer focused. Uh, we will lead an innovative effort in the market through our use of agile techniques and open source. I'd adopted something called extreme programming. Uh, it was written by a friend of mine, Kent Beck. Um, I'd, I'd been a fan of it back in the 19, uh, late 1999, roughly. Uh, so this was before the Agile Manifesto came out and we were heavy users of open source. I almost exclusively recruited from the Perl community. We had most of the Perl pumpkins working for me. Um, the problem with this vision statement, though, was I pinched it from another company and just changed a few words. I was that clueless. So I used to um, go around uh, listening to other CEOs talking about strategy, and I've done this many, many years. I used to record common words or what I call business level abstractions of a healthy strategy or blahs for short. Uh, uh, so I would like create these list of blahs. Uh, I think this was 2014. Um, Common blouse, digital business, big data, disruptive, innovative, collaborative, competitive advantage. It's just the words they would use, blah, blah, blah. And then I created something called the, the blah template. So I took all these various statements by companies 
and created our strategy is blah. We will lead a blah effort of the market through our use of blah and blah to build a blah. And then what I would do is smash the blahs and the blah templates together and auto generate at random different strategies, uh, things like this. Our strategy is innovative digital business. We will lead a growth effort of the market through our use of customer focused competitive advantage and disrupt. It's just total gibberish. But um, remember, I was, I had no idea what I was desperate. I was worried everybody would, um, would rumble. I was this fake CEO. But I, I used to send these around. And the last time I did this, um, I got about 400 responses uh, of three basic types. Uh, the first was, uh, this is the exact wording from our business plan. Uh, the second was I've seen two of these used already. And my my third, my favorite was, are you for hire? Um, so, so basically I started to realize I might not be the only person who was making stuff up. A friend of mine, by the way, has put this all online. Um, if you ever need a strategy, uh, this is strategy as a service. Uh, you just type in the URL and it will randomly generate you one based upon nothing whatsoever. I mean, uh, occasionally they update the blahs and they add in things like, I don't know, AI, blockchain. So you'll see those words appear as well. So our strategy is collaborative. We will lead an open effort of the market through our use of big data. And so it's just pure gibberish. If you don't like it, just press refresh. It will automatically create you a new one. You can pretend there's AI and blockchain and whatever else you want behind it. Uh, maybe there's you pretend there's a horde of McKinsey consultants tapping away. But um, it's uh, it's just um, just gibberish. Um, so I ended up in a bookstore and I was in this bookstore and I was talking to the bookseller and I, 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 I explained to her that I'd read every book I could find on strategy and I was getting nowhere. And so she persuaded me to buy um, two copies of uh, Sun Tzu's The Art of War. She had asked me, had I ever read it? I said, no. And so she said, well, they're different translations so buy two different copies. And I've got to say, I'm so grateful for that. It's fantastic, um, because it was in the reading of the second copy that I noticed a pattern. So when Sun Tzu talked about competition, talked about five factors that mattered, um, have a purpose, a moral imperative, understand your landscape, the environment you're competing in, and then understand the heavens or the climactic patterns, how the landscape is changing. Uh, then you need to orientate yourself around this with doctrine and uh, principles, basically. And then you need to, you know, that's when you apply the leadership, the gameplay, what we're going to do. And this overlapped with something else I read from John Boyd. Uh, John Boyd, US Air Force pilot, talked about the UDA loop. So you have the game, your purpose. The first thing you need to do is observe the environment. So this is where landscape and climactic patterns come into play. So, you know, what is your landscape? How is it changing? Then you need to orientate yourself around this. So this is where principles and culture and, you know, your, your genetic sort of background come into play. Oh, the genetic background of the organization. And uh, then you, you need to decide where you're going to attack. And then you act. And I, I, I was like fascinated by this. And at the heart of this are two whys. Um, the why of purpose, you know, your moral imperative to do something, like playing a game of chess, my why of purpose might be to win the game. And the why of movement, uh, so how do I decide whether to move this piece or that piece? Okay, And that depends a lot upon the landscape, you know, your orientation around this space and the gameplay, so you're into your leadership. 
So I had this and I was like, this must have been, oh gosh, uh, late 2004, 2005. I was really sort of like, this sort of made sense to me. So I started to look a bit, a little bit more and I started to look into the question of landscape. And I, I really got into military battles. And so uh, my, one of my favorite is uh, the Battle of Thermopylae. So this is Themistocles, ancient politician Greek general from the Athenian city-states. The Greeks were independent city-states and had a problem. The Persians were invading. Now there's about 140 to 170,000 Persians invading. Uh, what they decided to do was block off the Straits of Artemisium, force the Persians along a coastal road into an narrow pass called Thermopylae, where a small number of troops could defend against a larger force. It was a um, consider it a forcing function for change. Um, now, there were about 4,000 um, uh, Greeks, including 300 Spartans, which is where we get the story of the 300 from. Um, so I was like fascinated because you could use this to discuss what we're going to do and learn from this battle. And I thought, well, how do we decide in my business? Now, we used something called SWATs. Um, so I decided to create a SWAT of this battle. So uh, strengths, a well-trained Spartan army, uh, a high level of motivation not to become a Persian slave. Uh, weaknesses, the E4s might stop the Spartans turning up. A, a, a truckload of Persians are turning up. Uh, opportunities, get rid of the Persians, get rid of the Spartans, we're Athenian, we actually hate the Spartans, so if we can win the battle and get rid of them as well, that's a, that's a plus. Uh, and the threats, the Persians get rid of us, and well, I added this a bit later, the Oracle said a really dodgy film might be produced a few thousand years later. So I was looking at this SWAT diagram, and I, I, I lined it up against the map, and asked myself, what would you use to communicate and determine strategy in battle? Would you use position and movement described on some sort of map, or would you use some sort of like magic framework, like a SWOT diagram? And I thought, well, it's obvious, I'm gonna use a map. Uh, but then I looked at what I was doing in business and I went, I'm using SWOTs. So this got me into asking the question, all right, where are my maps? Because obviously I need maps. That's obviously the thing I'm missing. I hadn't done an MBA, and so uh, my mapping, by the way, is now taught at places like Harvard Kennedy, LSC, Peking University, Moscow Institute of Technology. But anyway, back then, uh, I hadn't done, uh, you know, I, I had no interaction with business schools, but I assume this is what you learn how to do on an MBA. You, you don't, by the way. And um, so uh, I, I, I had to create my own way of mapping, um, or at least find my maps. So I started looking around in the organization. We had loads of things called maps. We had mind maps. Uh, we had um, business process maps. We had even things called strategy maps. And we had systems maps. And I was like, wow, this is really great. So I took one of the systems maps. Here it is. Uh, it was uh, on part of the online photo business. And I took one component, CRM, customer relationship management, and I simply moved it. And I said, right, how has that changed the map? And the answer is, it hadn't. And I thought, well, that's a bit odd because if I take a geographic map and I move Australia and put it next to England, that's definitely, definitely changed the map. So why hasn't it changed the map here? And the reason why it hasn't changed the map is all of these maps had one thing in common. They weren't maps, they're graphs. So to explain the difference, uh, the three diagrams at the top, 
Nottingham, London, Dover, Nottingham, London, Dover, connected by two roads, M1, M2. Uh, the three diagrams at the top are all graphs and they're all identical. Now, the three diagrams at the bottom, again, Nottingham, London, Dover, Nottingham, London, Dover, connected by two roads. The three diagrams at the bottom are all maps and they're all completely different. So the difference between a graph and a map is that in a map, space has meaning. So when you move one of the nodes in a map, it fundamentally changes the context and meaning of the map, which is why maps are good for exploring landscapes. Now, in order to, for space to have meaning, you need three basic characteristics. You need an anchor, such as Magnetic North, uh, for geographical maps. You need position of pieces uh, relative to each other. So this is north, south, east, or west of that. And you need something called consistency of movement. By the way, if you hear lots of birds in the background, I live in the countryside, so we have huge numbers. So uh, apologies for that. I, I can't shoo them away, and I'm not going to anyway. So you need anchor, position, and consistency of movement. So if I'm going north, I'm going north. If I'm going south, I'm going south. So I thought, right, I need to recreate this for a competitive landscape. So being a Brit, I started with a tea shop. And I thought, right, what's my anchors? Well, I'm going to take public who hopefully want to drink tea and the business who want to sell tea. There, there are other anchors involved. Uh, there are, um, uh, you know, uh, regulators and people like that. But we'll start simple. And they have a need. One is for a need to sell tea. Um, uh, one uh, is a, a, a need to hopefully drink tea. But a cup of tea has needs. It needs tea, it needs cup, it needs hot water. And a hot water has needs. It needs cold water, it needs a kettle. And a kettle has needs, it needs power. So what we've got is an anchor at the top and we've got position described in a chain of needs. And the further something is away, the less visible it becomes. So for a public consumer, the cup of tea is very, very public to them. The power to heat the kettle is very distant. All right, so I've got anchor and position, but I also need uh, movement. And it turns out that all of these stocks of capital, uh, all of these nodes are actually stocks of capital and all of them evolve. And there's a common pattern by which they evolve. You start off with the genesis of novel and new items, custom-built examples, uh, products and rental services, and then more commodity and utility services. So what I can do is I simply take uh, that, that chain of needs and position things according to how evolved they are. And now what I've got is anchor, position, and movement described through evolution. And that is a map. And if I, if I move any component on this map, it changes the fundamental meaning of what the map is. So this uh, enables people to, you know, uh, tell me things I'm missing. So it helps me understand the details of what I'm doing. Because somebody might come along and say, oh, your map's great, but you're missing staff. And somebody might go, oh, staff, we want to use robots. Well, we can add that to a map. And then it also enables people to challenge assumptions. So somebody might go, why are we using custom-built kettles? Why aren't we using standard kettles? And somebody might go, oh, it's brand exclusivity or, or something like that. Um, we can also put metrics to it. So each of these nodes are stocks of capital and each of the lines are flows of capital. So we can put value to it and we can assign, you know, create a PL from this. 
And the point about this is it doesn't matter if you're from engineering or you're from marketing or you're from finance or you're from the business side or whatever it happens to be. We have a common language which we can talk about the space. Now, I'll give you an example of use. I'm going to start with the insurance company because uh, this, this is quite an old project. Um, so uh, this particular insurance company, they had a bottleneck. Uh, they, they use things like value stream mapping and all this sort of stuff. They're not maps, they're graphs, by the way. Um, and what they want to do is improve the process flow. Um, so they would uh, they needed compute order server. Server comes into goods in, modify mount and rack it. Now they had a problem. Uh, the problem was this bottleneck, and so in terms of modifying and mounting servers, so they spent six months uh, working on this. All these vendors came in. Uh, they came up with the idea of using robotics to do this. Wonderful business case, return investment calculations, everything else. I mean, it was great. And so they asked me what I thought. Now, here's the problem. I can't say why are you using robots, and the reason why I can't do that is because they've already created a story about the use of robots. And one of the biggest problems we have in organizations is that we keep on telling people that good leaders are great storytellers. And what that means is that when you give your story, if it doesn't succeed, it's because you're not a good leader, because you're not a great storyteller. And so we've made stories highly political. It's very difficult to challenge a story without challenging the person. So what I did was simply say, could you map it? Because I can't challenge your story. Uh, just, just put it on a map. And they was like, oh, I don't see the point of that. But anyway, 15 minutes later, this is the map they gave me. User needs compute, compute order server, server goods in. So order server, server goods in or commodity. For some reason, you know, this was 2000, no, it was about 10 years ago. They thought compute was more of a product, but that's okay. And they went rack mount modify. Now I simply looked at the map and said, why have you put rack in custom built? And one of the people said, well, it's because we have this company who makes our racks for us. And they're custom built, yes. So what are the modifications you're doing to service? Well, they don't fit our racks. So we have to take cases off, drill new holes, add new plates. Ah, and that's why you need robotics, yes. And then of course somebody in the room went, hang on, why aren't we using standard, standard racks? And this is the most common problem that I see people optimizing process flow, when in fact they need to first deal with evolutionary flow. Now, these people aren't daft. They'd spent six months working on this problem. The issue is they're trapped by context. So at some point in the past, it made sense to use custom-built racks. And now they're just trying to improve that process. And until you take them out of the story and give them a way of looking at environment, it's very difficult for people to challenge. Okay. So I often put it this way, if the user needs a slice of toast, do you buy a toaster for $40 or do you spend nine months lovingly building a toaster for $1,000 from raw materials, which is the uh, Thomas Thwaites toaster project? Well, obviously you don't, you don't spend $1,000, spend nine months building it, okay. Right, well, if the user needs some compute, do you use a compute utility like EC2 or Azure or do you spend years and millions of dollars lovingly building your own compute environment, your own private cloud from raw material? It's amazing how many people went, oh, we're going to build our own. Okay, it's very common. So I'll give you another example. Uh, this is uh, HS2, high-speed rail. 
big heavy engineering project um it's about 60 70 billion odd um this is james finley a good friend of mine uh he was the cio he's now doing interesting stuff uh with uh, lifeboats etc anyway they needed to build the entire railway in a virtual world uh, because it's cheaper to dig up the virtual world and go whoops we've got that wrong than cheap dig up the english countryside so this is the systems diagram for building hs2 in a virtual world now the problem J james had is how do i manage this do i uh, which bits do i outsource which bits do i use off-the-shelf products for which bits do i build in-house that simple diagram that graph uh, there are 387 million possible permutations of that question in that single graph. So how do you choose? Well, in government, what we used to do was a lot of this. We would outsource it all, and then we'd break it into lots, uh, where we'd group things together. So that sounds engineering, so we'll have that as a lot one engineering. That's one contract. Uh, we'll, we'll group this stuff. That's user experience -y stuff. So that's another contract. This seems back office -y stuff. That's how we used to do things. And it used to ter go terribly, terribly wrong a lot of the time. So James sat down. Uh, it was a Sunday afternoon, and quickly I, I taught him how to map uh, beforehand. He quickly mapped it out, and he sent this map to me. Uh, and he gave me a phone call, this is back in 2012, so I tidied up the map a little bit, and he said, how do we manage this? And I said, well, uh, it's quite easy, actually, um, because I'd gone all agile uh, extreme programming back in 2002, 2003, and of course, by 2004, we, we'd learned it doesn't work everywhere. And what we'd learned is that you need to use multiple methods. So extreme programming was very good on the left-hand side because it was good at reducing the cost of change and changes the norm. Whereas Six Sigma and outsourcing was good on the right-hand side because it was good at reducing deviation and that's what you want to do. Um, whereas Lean I was good in the middle, uh, say Scrum, MVP, all those sorts of artifacts because it's uh, focused on um, learning, reducing waste, which is what you need to do. So you simply apply that. You go, right, the stuff on the left-hand side will build in-house with agile techniques. Stuff in the middle will tend to use off-the-shelf products that we're building, we use lean. Stuff on the right-hand side, we're outsourced to utility providers and uh, uh, or, you know, use Six Sigma. And so that's what they did. And they ended up being in front of the public accounts committee, being praised for being ahead of schedule, ahead of budget, uh, un way under budget. Fantastic. So what would have happened if we had done it the normal route? Okay, so let's take one of those contracts. Let's take lot one engineering. Um, so let me have a look at lot one engineering. There it is. We're outsourcing it all. I can tell you before we've even started, because we're going to try and specify this in a contract, that the stuff on the right-hand side will be efficiently treated. And the stuff on the left-hand side will always incur excessive change control costs. And the reason for this is we can't specify. So we try and specify stuff we can't specify. We're always going to get massive cost overruns. It's quite, it's quite funny. You can sit down with these enormous projects, map it out, overlay the contract structure, and you can literally go, yeah, that contract, you know, before you've signed, it's not going to work. We're just going to lose a bucket load of money. That one, that's not going to work either. Bucket load of money. That one's okay. That one's okay. Simply by mapping it out. I mean, this sort of stuff we did in UK government. So I, I wrote something called the Better for Less paper with a friend of mine, Liam Maxwell and others, Mark Thompson, Jerry Fishington. This was for Francis Moore. This was back in 2009, 2010. This led to something called spend control and helped support the formation of something called GDS, Government Digital Services. 
Um, and simply by using mapping, I mean, we say one project was 425 million, about 1.5 billion in its lifetime. Really simple exercises. But this stuff was common. All right. But the other thing about what happens with maps is you start to share them. The real value is in sharing maps, uh, not just uh, allowing others to challenge your assumptions, but you can also find duplications and bias. So you get maps from borders, police, immigration. You start putting uh, the single dots onto uh, a common uh, uh, map and you start finding we're building multiple user registration systems and sometimes we're custom building stuff which others think is a commodity. That's quite common. Now, before you think I'm having a pop at government, um, the worst example of go in government I found of duplication is 118 workflow systems uh, doing the same thing. We've managed to build prisoner registration 118 different ways. Um, and that is nothing compared to the private sector. If you want waste and inefficiency, the private sector beats government hands down. I mean, the levels are just astronomical. I've got a, a bank who've managed to build risk management over a thousand times. We, we stopped counting at that point. It was just like, wow. I mean, the vast majority of the PL is nothing but waste. Um, one of the best ways of challenging it, I mentioned spend control. Uh, is, is to introduce a system of spend control. It's not to take people's money away from them as in departments budgets. It's to do basically pre-mortem challenge and post-mortem learning, basically. So pre-mortem challenge, you, you map out the environment before they go off and do it and say, and you challenge what they're doing. And then after they've done it, then you use the same map and update it and we do some post-mortem learning. And that's how we learn patterns. Which brings me to the next section, which is patterns. All right, there are three common patterns uh, that you need to know about. One is um, uh, climactic patterns. These are basically the rules of the game. Um, they're, they're the economic patterns. Uh, there's about 30 of those. If there's supply and demand competition going on, well, these patterns will occur. Uh, doctrine, these are universally useful patterns that you can apply. So, so climactic patterns will happen to you whether you like it or not, unless you can stop competition. Uh, doctrine, you've got a choice over, but they're universally useful, so you tend to use them all the time. And there's about 40 of those. Um, there's about 30 climactic patterns. And there's about 100 different forms of gameplay. So these are all context-specific patterns. Uh, things like open source, great for uh, forcing something to industrialize or encouraging industrialization. So I've mentioned a whole bunch of um, uh, patterns regarding um, uh, doctrine principles. So these are things like know your users, uh, focus on user needs, uh, understand the details. Uh, so it's not just enough to know, um, uh, you know, who, users of the tea shop and the business and what their needs are. You've got to understand the details. Another one is understand what is being considered. So it's it's not enough to just know there's a kettle. You've got to know there's a world of difference between a custom built kettle and a commodity kettle. Another one is to challenge assumptions. Uh, that's a universally useful pattern. So once uh, somebody's got a map, uh, just don't just leave it there. Ask, why are we custom building kettles? And another one is to have a common language. So it doesn't matter if you're finance or business or engineering, we can all talk about the same space using a single map. Another one is to use appropriate methods. 
Um, so agile over here, outsource over here. No such thing as one size magic fits all methods. Another one is to remove bias and duplication. Another one is bias towards data. So having a map, challenging on it, doing something, and then again, learning from it. Useful thing to do. Anyway, as I said, there's about 40 commonly uh, universally useful patterns. And the ones at the very, uh, very bottom are the ones we've gone through. I call, I call them the phase one patterns. So common language, challenge assumptions, understanding what is being considered, know your users, things like that. Most organizations are hopeless. <laughs> really hopeless at this stuff. Okay. So there's another set of patterns called climactic patterns. So these are um, uh, like the economic patterns. And uh, so if you take a single uh, uh, line, and this is compute circa 2005, user needs an application, application built on best coding practice, built on a runtime, built on operating system, built on best architectural practice, built on compute as a product. The first pattern you learn, a climactic pattern, is that everything evolves. Nothing is static. Your map isn't static, it's moving. So we knew compute was going to a utility, and that brings benefits of efficiency. The second pattern you learn is that past success breeds inertia. So there are about 16 different forms, uh, pre-existing capital, political capital, all that sort of stuff. Um, so it's like Blockbuster Netflix. Um, first with a website, Blockbuster. First with video ordering online, Blockbuster. First with video streaming, Blockbuster. First to go bankrupt, Blockbuster. So Blockbuster out-innovated everyone, including Netflix. Uh, the problem was, is they had inertia created by pre-existing business models, made basically late fees, past success. That's what that's what got them. The next pattern you learn is co-evolution. So as things evolve, you see um, uh, new, new practices emerge. So what we had is best architectural practice for computers of product versus uh, emerging architectural practice based upon computers of utility or cloud. So this was circa 2008. And that's because the underlying component is characteristics change. It goes from um, the case of computers and product, high MTTR, high mean time to recovery, to, to cloud, which was low mean time to recovery. So I mean by that, you'd take weeks for a server to turn up uh, and you move to a world where it was seconds. So suddenly we can distribute systems designed for failure, do things like continuous deployment. I mean, there was no point in doing continuous deployment if you're waiting weeks for the machines to turn up. Um, Anyway, eventually, uh, Andy and Patrick gave those new emerging practices a term, a uh, name, a flag. Uh, we called it DevOps. Next pattern you learn is that efficiency enables innovation. So as things evolve, they enable higher order systems to appear. And those higher order systems create new sources of value of worth. Um, so we get things like Netflix. Pretty straightforward. Now, the point about this is that by simply taking a line and seeing how it's changing by applying those common economic patterns, then we can we can work out you know where we should place our bets, and so that's exactly what I did with uh, uh, Ubuntu. Uh, I used to run Strashy for uh, a company called Canonical. They provide something called Ubuntu. This is what we did in two thousand eight. We were two to three percent of the operating system market against Microsoft and Red Hat, who had all the money and all, all the share. Uh, we simply used the maps to work out where to target. And, and we targeted and it took us 18 months and half a million. And we went from being two to three percent to 70 percent of all cloud. 
Uh, if you were around in cloud space, you might have remember it was Microsoft read out and then suddenly it was Ubuntu everywhere. That was us. Uh, you were Matt. Oh, that was me. I was running strategy for them. Um, of course, things don't stand still. Um, uh, the emerging practice evolved, got a name, DevOps. Uh, the best architectural practice for computers, a product, got a new name, uh, Legacy. Uh, the runtime then evolved. Uh, runtime's gone from lamp.net to, to Lambda. And so we're getting the same patterns of new emerging practices, uh, new needs being created, all fairly basic stuff. And the point about this is that strategy is iterative. Is iterative. So what you would do in 2010 is fundamentally different to what you would now do in 2021. So, for example, 2021, things like DevOps, cloud, that's just building the new legacy. So if you were going to start up on, a, oh, we're going to we're going to convert to cloud and introduce DevOps into our organization, it'll take you seven years to get that done. But it took Netflix seven years. By the time you finish, you've built the new legacy. Well, so what was the point? I mean, to, you know, great for 2010, uh, but today you'd attack the serverless space. So you'd look at companies like iRobot. Um, so iRobot, they have about 10, 15 million robots out there. They're, they're the Rumbo, the Lawnmower, uh, the, the, the uh, Hoovers. Um, the entire thing runs with 100 Lambda functions, 30 AWS services. They have zero EC2 instances, zero containers, certainly no data centers or anything like any of that nonsense. It's all gone. And um, the, uh, the, the, the number of people, how many people do you need to maintain support into 50 million robots? About six. Okay, it's a completely different world. <laughs> Great. Um, so, so we've done the, the sort of doctrine patterns and the climactic patterns, which we use for anticipation. There's another example. Uh, these are the gameplay. I won't go through, there's a hundred of those. So we'll just quickly mention a few. No, I'll mention one. Um, my favorite one is the ILC pan. Uh, it's very simple. You take a product, you turn it into a utility, and you make it available publicly to others. So you can't do this if it's in Genesis or custom built because it's not stable enough. I, I hear people say we're going to API our stuff. Well, if it's in custom built or early product, it's not developed enough. Um, so it's a really bad time to do it because you, you just slow down innovation. What you do is you attack it when it's sort of late product, turn it into a utility, expose it, like compute. And then what happens is everybody, hopefully, fingers crossed, build on top. So you get componentization effects. That's great. Um, as in people use it to build new things on top. And so they might go and do kit and internet. They might go and do, um, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, big data stuff on that. The thing is, they're consuming your service. So you can't look at their data. Their data is their data, but you have to build them. And in order to build them, you have to see how much they're consuming of your service. And that's the metadata. And that tells you what's becoming successful so that you can mine the entire ecosystem to spot new patterns, which you commoditize to new component services. Uh, I don't know, uh, say Elastic Map Reduce. And then everybody cheers because they've got this new service. They can build things more quickly, componentization effects, except for the people you've just harvested from. And they're saying, you've eaten my business model. Uh, and isn't it terrible? And everybody else cheers because progress moves much more quickly. They can build new things. So what you're doing is you're getting everybody else to innovate for you. You're mining the metadata to spot future patterns. And then you're commoditizing to component services. 
And so your apparent rate of innovation, customer focus and efficiency all now simultaneously increase with the size of your ecosystem. So the bigger your ecosystem gets, the more innovative you appear because everybody is your free research lab, the more customer focused you are because you're mining metadata to give people what they really need, and you're more efficient economies of scale. And so it's a fantastic pattern. So I wrote about this in 2005. Um, you know, Amazon, I think, does a great job of doing this. Uh, compute, machine learning, they, they, they drive up the right hand. So I know people say, oh, it's terrible, they harvest. They are forcing progression. And the problem is China government does exactly the same gameplay. So I know people go and say, oh, well, we need to break up Amazon or whatever nonsense they come up with. Um, well, that's great. But if, if China doesn't do that to people like Alibaba and so forth, all you're basically saying is we want to be behind the future, further behind. I mean, it gets you nowhere. All right. Um, so um, you, what you have to do is you have to adapt and learn how to play the game properly. So, so you know, they do a great job of doing this. Um, there's a wonderful book uh, called Reaching Cloud Velocity. Uh, Mark, uh, well, it's um, Jonathan Allen and Thomas Blood. Um, well worth reading. You'll find there's about 17 pages of mapping in there, including the uh, whole ILC system. This is, I think, AWS's second ever book. Uh, uh, that's Amazon Web Services. Uh, they've, they've, uh, they've done some really good books recently, as in their own books. Okay, a couple of things about mapping. Um, all maps are imperfect representations of a space. So um, if you wanted to create a perfect map of France, it would have to be one-to-one -one scale, which means it would be the size of France, which means it would be France. Okay, so in order to be useful, it's got to be imperfect. Secondly, underneath maps are models. So in, the, in this case, the model of change is evolution, and all models are wrong. So the first things you need to know about a map is they're all imperfect and they're all wrong. But that's okay, because they also turn out to be useful. Uh, I mean, we've used maps in, in government to save billions. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's I, I, I like the things like uh, this is Jackie Taylor, Dr. Jackie Taylor, uh, using maps in terms of smart cities and other bits and pieces. There's some great stuff going on there. But the ones I like are things like this. Uh, we use maps, uh, oh, James Finley used maps to improve communication processes uh, within uh, lifeboats, and that, that saves lives. I mean, they got it down to about 40 minutes to 18 seconds for call-out time. So when people fall in the Thames, they're actually bringing people out alive rather than dead, and that's just incredible. So I love that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, mapping also gets used in things like combating illegal fishing and uh, the slavery trade as well. So, uh, I, I, you know, really good stuff. I mean... Um, uh, I have friends at the UN have mapped from reducing global poverty all the way down to different statistics organizations and all this sort of stuff. So I, I, I love the stuff where uh, it's more doing good. Um, a lot gets done with venture capital firms with mapping. This is Upeka. Uh, it's an Indian VC firm, startup accelerator. They've got about 100 startups now all using mapping. And they've got, a, a, I think about, um, uh, I was talking to them recently, about 65% roughly uh, a cash flow positive within two years. It's just incredible uh, uh, rates uh, that they've got. And there's lots of books out there. There's the UN book uh, on IT strategy, which is just full of maps, Amazon's book. There's a science fiction book by a wonderful chap called Tao Klein. It's the new Ready Player One. So this is, uh, or described as, being turned into a film. 
it's a science fiction book but in order to write the science fiction book he used maps to map the future and then used the maps to create the book it's a bit like a J.R. Tolkien um my one of my favorite quotes for Lord of the Rings uh, was he said he fortunately wisely sorry started with a map he actually produced the map before he actually produced the book uh, so in this case it was a technology uh, map uh, which was used to write the book and it's being turned into a film a lot of my stuff is nation state competition uh, so china usa all this sort of stuff um but anyway um we also have something called map camp uh, where um, thousands well last time there's 1400 mappers from around the world turned up it's all virtual um so uh, if you mapcamp.co.uk you'll find it on there we've got great speakers from all over the place coming along i suppose that gets me to the expert uh, the magical mystery tour i see i've got about 18 minutes left so i could do meaning organization or we can get into culture and sovereignty or, or, or you may have some burning questions you want to ask now um anybody want to shout out continue more i'm overloaded or can i ask questions and by the way yeah i'm, I'm at home so you're gonna hear birds you're gonna hear banging you're gonna hear people ringing on the door I have, say, <laughs> yes i have one very brief question which is i'm seeing a lot of people say continue and i'm that's kind of in the boat i'm in Okay. Real quick, what is a good resource for if we aren't able to get to organization and we aren't able to get to meaning and we go to culture? What's a good resource for us to independently learn more about this and kind of keep that going off the call? So it's all crazy common share alike. I made it crazy common share alike back in all 2005. Um, you'll find there's something called list.waterlymaps.com. It's an awesome list created by the community, which has links all over the place. There's lots of mappers out there teaching people how to map. They've got Slack groups and everything else. Um, I've written um, about 600 pages of book. It's all Creative Commons, uh, medium.com forward slash Wardley Maps. Um, you, you can find that there. Um, there's lots of presentations and other things. People are organizing. There's meetups that go in Australia, in the US. There's been map camps in the US. It's, um, there's an entire community out there. Does that answer your question? That does. Thank you. Pleasure. All right, so um, how long have we got? 16 minutes, meaning. Um, oh, let's, let's start, see how far we get. So I said about user application, best coding practice, runtime operating system, best architectural practice, compute. And what happened is you apply one pattern, things will evolve, and you know another pattern, um, a climactic pattern. Uh, which is uh, co-evolution. As things evolve, characteristics change, you'll get a new emerging practice. Okay, so one of the things about this is the best architectural practice and the emerging architectural practice had a common meaning, as in architectural practice. Whenever you get this co-evolution of practice, they have a common meaning. So DevOps and ITIL both have a common meaning. But what we're actually talking about are two different competencies linked to a material change in the underlying technology. So one competence is best for computers a product. And one competence, and DevOps is now probably good heading towards best, is best for computers a utility. Now, it can also go the other way in terms of if you have a meaning such as, I don't know, a thing like teleportation or compute or I don't know, money, it evolves. 
So you start off with uh, computers. Yeah, uh, I know. Tele well, well, we haven't done teleportation, so uh, well, we'll do compute. Computers Genesis, 1940s on roughly. Then you get computers products and computers utilities. And so you have three different material instances. And so what's happened is certain practices have evolved to be competent for a particular material instance. This is why Agile has evolved to become sort of good practice for building something which is um, relatively novel and new. At the bottom, those are labels, Genesis Custom Product Commodity. It really should say stage one, two, three, and four um, for uh, evolution, but that's meaningless. Um, but you can use different labels. There's novel, emerging, good, and best. You could replace it with that when talking about practice. So Agile is probably good, heading towards best practice for building new things. And you've got Lean and Six Sigma have evolved to be good at different stages as well. Unfortunately, they all have a common meaning, which is project management. So we have this wonderful world where we have a common meaning, so uh, compute or say teleportation. Teleportation genesis, teleportation as a product, teleportation as a utility, three different material instances, but we'll all call it teleportation. And we've got project management, which we call common meaning, even though it's three completely different evolving um, uh, competencies. And we keep on trying to find, well, what's the right project management for this thing? It depends. It depends on how evolved the thing is. Because if it's novel, you'd use Agile. If it's more uh, commodity, you use Six Sigma. But we don't like that. We love our, you know, Ashby's law requisite variety. We try and pretend the reality is simple rather than cope with the complexity. So, so we, we love our simple methods. So we keep on building cults. Uh, things like, uh, you know, Agile works everywhere. Or Six Sigma works everywhere. Or Safe works everywhere. Or the one size fits all. No, it's, it's just a cult, that's all. It, it's not possible. So... Oh, I love the latest ones in the Agile because uh, these, these all grand, all singing, all dancing Agile methods work everywhere. And then when they don't, because they can't, because their change of characteristics are fundamentally different, then people say, well, you use the wrong bits of the Agile method. Well, in which case I go, well, so it's process over people, not people over process then, is it? Because that's like the opposite of what Agile actually is. Um, most of this stuff has become cult-like. You just remember, use appropriate methods. All right, organization. Hello. Oh, that's okay. So this is Fatango 2003, 2004. I made every mistake, every single one. So in 2002, I organized like this, uh, CIO, CFO, CBO, different silos. And we used to get lots of fights uh, between the silos. So I came up with this magic idea that what I would do is have little teams and product owners. This was 2003. I thought, this is great. Uh, this is going to be marvelous. And all that happened is I got more fights. And so then I came up with this idea. The reason why I'm getting more fights is because within any one of these things, I have like development, building new stuff and core keeping. the So what I need to do is split the organizations into dev and core, whether it was IT finance or whatever it was. And that was about 2004. And that just generated all out warfare. This was bimodal. Uh, about eight years before Gartner came up with the term, and it's gibberish, okay? All-out warfare. And the reason for this was pretty simple. If I map it, I, I had maps by 2005, so I could see what was going wrong. I had the core components, and Dev would build new stuff. And as it evolved, Dev would turn up and uh, say, you look after this. 
and uh, the core would go where's the documentation dev would go well we don't do documentation they get into a big fight and then dev would go and build new things on top of these unstable things so nothing was involving in my organization and all that was happening was i was getting increasing instability and open warfare between the two groups because i had this missing middle so what I realized is I needed three groups. I needed pioneers to build, run, and operate the novel and new, settlers to find the common patterns and turn those into more products, etc., and build, run, and operate that space. And I need town planners to take those products and industrialize components. So I need to mimic evolutionary flow in a single organization. I pinched those ideas basically from Accidental Empires, which was a wonderful book written by Robert X. Cringely. That's a pseudonym uh, back in 1993. So I reorganized. Chief pioneer, chief settler, chief town planner, by attitudes. Some people like the sort of chaotic fading world of the pioneers. Some people are great at the industrialized empires of scale of the town planners. And then I would run aptitudes across. So finance was a group across uh, within finance. It's a common skill set, but there are pioneers, settlers, town planners within that. And then I would organize my cells uh, with a common attitude. And to replicate um, uh, evolution, I introduced the system of theft. So what would happen is the pioneers would build, run, and operate the novel anew, and the settlers would look at what they're doing, and at some point say, we're stealing that from you. We're turning that into a product and the pioneers would go oh no we want to keep it inertia inertia but they would be forced to move on and the town planners would be looking at what the settlers are doing and say that should be a component utility like service and we'll steal that from you and so we introduced the system of theft into the single organization now to do this properly you need maps because you need to you know, understand the landscape break down into small teams apply the right attitude if you want to read more about this um our intelligence services GCHQ has a wonderful document called Boiling Frogs, which will take you through that in more, in more detail. All right, it's all open. Help yourself. Use a slightly different terms, but you, you'll see my work. Here's the problem though, is people often look at that and go, oh, we need to reorganize. And I have to say, don't. And the reason why is that um, reorganization is the easy thing to die for. Um, it's a bit like being on a Titanic got a great big hole in the boat and somebody says if we move the deck chairs everything will be great no it won't fix the hole and the hole is is that doctrine that i talked about so i mentioned there's like 40 odd doctrine in here just to give you an example this is a big uh web-based giant uh, blue is good they're pretty good at most things Okay, and that's the sort of organization you can mess around with Pioneer Settler Town Planner in. This is a bank. Uh, Orange is warning. Okay, they are rubbish at it all. Now they survive because they're competing against other organizations who also look like this. They're all hopeless. You know, and we talk about uh, survival of the fittest, it's survival of the least incompetent most of the time. I mean, it's okay to be rubbish as long as everybody else is rubbish. It's like running away from the bear uh, in the woods. You know, you know, if everybody's wearing concrete shoes, no one's gaining an advantage, that sort of thing. All right. Um, yeah, it's called the Red Queen, uh, Professor Van Balen. So this is the thing you need to fix first. Don't mess around with org structure, leave it alone. I know execs like to go for org structure because it's a nice sounding thing to do. 
Uh, at which point normally somebody says to me it's all about culture and it's just like this is where things get depressing um uh, and i've got seven minutes left uh, i'll do a little bit of culture right here's the problem with culture uh, uh crowbar uh, despite a century of efforts uh, to define culture uh, um, there is no agreement amongst anthropologists so anthropologists are the experts on culture and they can't agree what culture is and they've spent a hundred years doing this and it's not because they're daft okay so i love it when people say it's all about culture because they say what do you mean by that and they go oh anyway so if i look at a map i and i talked about principles okay principles are very different from values which are beliefs so i said principle use appropriate methods but on that single map, we've also got two beliefs. One is a belief of people over process, which is the agile world. And one is a belief in process over people, which is the Six Sigma world. Now, you can have polar opposite beliefs happily coexist in the same environment if you understand their appropriate context. Some polar opposite beliefs can't exist, like a belief in God, not belief in God or whatever, etc. if you're a religious organization. But some can happily coexist. All right. So what's the problem with culture? Because we've got values, uh, beliefs, we've got principles. Well, the problem is that uh, Margaret Mee, one of the greatest anthropologists there's ever been, uh, language is a discipline of cultural behaviour. And what does that mean? It means uh, language is part of culture. And so you can't model it in language. This is the uh, um, um, it's Girdle's incompleteness theorem. So how do you actually model, how do you describe culture if you can't use language because it's it's part of it? Well, I said, you know, the um, axis at the bottom map, uh, they're just labels. Uh, we can use other labels. Uh, they all share the same common characteristics. So I often use, when looking at ethical values, concept emerging, convergent, accepted. So if I put that at the bottom, and here's a map from a collective universal basic income, paid holiday unionization, links to anti-discrimination laws, workers' rights, civil rights. Martin Luther King talked about the twin pillars of uh, democracy. Workers' rights, come, Knights of Labour movement in the US, comes from the abolition of slavery. Underneath this are concepts of reciprocity and fairness. So you can map out legal structures and ethical values in a society. Now, you've got a collective um and we like to succeed at collectives and that collective has many values so i just compress that entire map of values into a pipeline and that's what the squares mean it means there are many different forms if we start there we can expand it out and we can basically map culture or a representation of culture with things like enablement systems doctrine gameplay behavior concepts of safety etc now, it's not singular. Uh, we belong to many cultures. Uh, you can't just copy values and expect your organization to look like another organization. Oh, we just copy their values, we'd be like them. No, there are many other things involved. There are feedback loops. So timing is important, uh, but you can ad adopt things. You can adopt things like principles and doctrine. Okay. And so this then brings me into sovereignty. And the reason why is when we talk about physical sovereignty, what well, we, we use maps and we go, here's a map, here's our border. And within our border is our collective, our behaviors and our values. 
And those collective behavior values exist in this map of culture and they're linked to the landscape you're actually in, the commercial landscape you're, oper you're operating in. So what does that mean? Well, I'll go back to the China example. I said I do nation state competition. So this is the automotive industry rolled forward. And that was just looking at gameplay. But basically, a lot of the stuff in the auto in automotive industry is becoming commodity-like. Um, so user just wants to get from A to B. Increasingly self-driving cars, it's going to start disappearing. Um, but the other thing people want is status. So this is what uh, uh, we wrote about this in government about six years ago. Um, this is what uh, car manufacturers can play to. Things like um, uh, route management introduction of digital subscription models and sure enough 2018 bmw started talking about digital subscription models in cars and what that means is you won't own a car in the future but you get in a car and the experience you get depends on if you're a platinum member or not and more importantly route management as your self-driving car goes along the road other lower subscription members the cars move out the way uh, we've just embedded um, inequality into the transportation system not a great idea, particularly if we have a flood, because the poor people don't get out, the rich people do, and the next day we've got pitchforks. Anyway, the point about this is that was a landscape of the economic patterns to do with the automotive industry. And those users belong to a collective. Those collective has values. Those values are embedded in the simulation models, which is embedded in the agents, which is why we have the whole Beijing-Washington AI ethics debate. It's the trolley problem. Car comes along, do you kill four or one person? Depends which society. If you're a Confucian society, tough luck for the one person. If you're a, a neoliberal, neoliberal type society, if the one person's very wealthy and the four people are unemployed, tough luck for the four people. And, you know, don't put it beyond people to do that sort of stuff. But the point about this, whoops, is when we talk about digital sovereignty, it's the same thing. Our collective, our behaviours, our values, where are the borders that we want in society on our maps? And the joke is, of course, is that most of the conversation has no maps at all. It's just a whole bunch of people giving a good old story about, oh, our data's really important. Oh, we're going to have ethics in AI. That's really important. Yeah, why? Uh, where's your map? I have none. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org. Thank you.